This program is sponsored by Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts. Located on 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. Welcome back to the Dead TV Podcast in the year 2020. New year, new decade. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Zedica. And tonight, we are jumping on to a brand new show after being on hiatus for a couple weeks. And the show will continue with its bi-weekly schedule with two episodes apiece. Our new show is going to be the 2000-2002 TNT TV series, Witchblade, based on the comic book by Top Cow Publications. Witchblade was a character created in 1995, so we are actually also on the 25th anniversary of the Witchblade. The first episode of Witchblade is actually a TV movie. Yes, not a not an episode of the show. The show would debut a year later because of the ratings for the TV movie at a time where TV movies were still being made, and nowadays there's almost zero reason to ever make a TV movie unless it's on the Hallmark Channel or Lifetime. Uh, uh, I just saw Catherine Mary Stewart was making a post on Facebook, uh, the actress from uh, you know Weekend at Bernie's. She said that she was on her way to film a brand new Christmas movie for the Hallmark Channel. I was <laughs> like, you're still making made-for-TV uh. movies. That is hilarious. But if you look at Catherine Mary Stewart's IMDb list over the last 10 years, she's paid her mortgage on these Christmas made-for-TV movies. So, <laughs> Well, you know, more power to her. But, you know, that's just a channel I avoid during Christmas. I just do not care for those lovey-dovey, saccharine, just completely saccharine Christmas movies. Correct. We're going to be joined by a guest for the first episode soon. He's taking care of something he'll be calling into us uh, and uh, Ron Mars former writer of The Witchblade will call into the show to talk to us about his time spent on the comic book he started in issue 80 actually and went all the way to issue 150 was pulled off the book and then came back for the last 25 issues after they kind of went in another direction, realized that was the wrong direction to go, brought him back. But he'll he'll talk about that. We will be on the Witchblade for a while, so anything we don't talk about in this episode, we will cover on the Witchblade in subsequent ex- episodes, such as things like the Darkness and the Angelus, which are all characters connected to the Witchblade. I'm actually, uh, sitting right next to me right now, is the first issue of the Witchblade, which has a beautiful cover by the late great Michael Turner, as uh, the Witchblade's creator, Michael Turner, the uh, artist behind her, unfortunately passed away of cancer. He had two rounds of cancer and lost it the second time. Other oh, creators of the Witchblade include David Wall, Brian Haberlin, 
who helped contribute to her creation. Christina Z is also uh, involved in a lot of what we know and love about the Witchblade. So throughout the no, first episode which- of the for throughout the first episode of the pilot, we will I will uh, differentiate between like how the comic book chain was different than the uh, the TV series because there is a lot of differences. <laughs> there is a lot of differences. So Witchblade episode or Witchblade comic number one came out November 1995, right, Doctor Chris? If that's what it says, yes. So that again, that would make this year the 25th anniversary of the creation of the Witchblade. And Top Cow has announced that they have big plans for their two biggest icons in 2020, as they had been kind of absent for a little while. And the Witchblade was brought back to mixed results in this previous year. It wasn't quite the Witchblade we were expecting, or the Witchblade we even remember. So they kind of went new directions with it. But again, don't br- don't fix what's not broken. I mean, the Witchblade could be a really good supernatural cop drama with you know, sexy elements to it. You don't need to overdo the TNA and you don't need to completely re you know, change everything we know about the Witchblade. In fact, it doesn't even need to be Sarah Bazzini, but we'll get into that as well as we go forward with the show. So to set some ground, uh, you know, set the table here for everyone. Now, what is the Witchblade? We will get into that as the show goes along because it's explained in the first in the pilot movie too. But we're going to get into the origin of the Witchblade when Ron calls into the show because he actually wrote the origin of the Witchblade. Yay! It took them ten years, but yeah, the tenth anniversary special issue ninety two goes into the long-awaited origin of where the Witchblade comes from. Um, and the comic book also shows different depictions of the Witchblade, including the first bearer of the Witchblade, who happened to be, strangely enough, an English-speaking cavewoman. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm assuming they just forgot to stick in that little translated-from-cave-speak little asterisk that they sometimes do. Yeah, but yeah, she yeah. is a bikini, cl- fuzzy bikini-clad, long raven-haired, busty cavewoman who has a pet saber-toothed tiger... And sees a meteorite crash to Earth, and it happens to be the first incarnation of the Witchblade. Because the Witchblade changes throughout history. But again, we'll get into that. We're going to start with the very first, the made-for-TV movie. Uh, The made-for-TV movie was released on August 27, 2000. And uh, the synopsis, which is pretty much for the entire series as well, but uh, synopsis, Witchblade is the story of a New York detective, Sarah Pezzini whose search for justice leads her to an arcane weapon that grants her the power to battle Earth's darkest evil forces. Dun, dun, dun. I remember when this was announced to come out, I was so excited. I had been a casual fan of the Witchblade uh, comic book for a while and had jumped off of it, but when they announced that this made-for-TV movie was coming out, I immediately made sure I was available that Sunday night on TNT to watch it. And I no, thought it I had, stuck to the comic books perfectly. Yeah, I had not been aware that Witchblade was a television show until way later. My experience with Witchblade was mainly from the costuming side of things. I would go to the San Diego Comic-Con, and occasionally you'd get a very confident woman pulling off the Witchblade costume. Like, there was one in 1999 and another one in 2013. Just amazing, amazing outfits. And so I learned a little bit about what the Witchblade was, but I've never read the comics or watched the television show or have any other, you know, it just wasn't part of the sphere of of what I read. So this for me is kind of a brand new avenue. I'm, you know, we're going on this journey together. (laughs) 
the director of the pilot movie uh, had also directed episodes of Silk Stocking, so you can see where his trademark sexiness comes into play there. Um, and then also directed episodes of Once Upon a Time, Blue Bloods, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and The Flash, which are currently involved in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Nice. The star of the show, Yancey Butler, is also the reason why the show was canceled. That is true. Uh, she had to go to rehab for an addiction problem, so uh, the show could not go on without her. Unfortunately. And maybe yeah. we'll have Yancey on the show to talk about uh, her time on the Witchblade, as well as her substance abuse problem, um, which I hope she won't mind discussing about, like, the ups and downs in Hollywood and, you know, substance abuse and stuff like that. That is not to poke fun at her. That is also to be therapeutic, because uh, substance abuse victims are, you know, like, encouraged to talk about their, their past and their problems. And she's still working today. I mean, she has credits going all the way into post and pre-production into 2020. Excellent. Yeah. She was actually in a movie. I remember when uh, uh, Wesley Snipes was in trouble with the law. I was at working at Blockbuster, and I saw her and Wesley Snipes on the cover of a DVD. I can't remember the name of the movie. But I do remember she was in Kick-Ass. She played Kick-Ass's <laughs> teacher um, in high school, which I thought was hilarious. Um yeah, and she was also in uh, Kick-Ass 2, the sequel, of course. Oh, she was? Okay, I, I didn't yeah. realize that. But uh, Witchblade's the only thing I remember him besides being in uh, Kick-Ass. Uh, excuse me. Um, sh- uh, da, 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 da. We also have uh, Anthony Sistaro, who plays uh, lead villain of the uh, show, Kenneth Irons, or good guy, bad guy, Kenneth Irons. But he's definitely the Lex Luthor of the show. He's a billionaire. He knows everything about the Witchblade because he covets the Witchblade. In fact, he tried to put the Witchblade on. <laughs> and and that did not end book, well. <laughs> yeah, you do not put the Witchblade on if you are of the male variety. Um, in the comic books, it's tested on people, and it just rips their arm completely off. Oh, yikes. The only person who's ever been able to wear the Witchblade that is of the male variety is uh, Ian Nottingham. Oh, uh, why? I don't really remember. <laughs> but uh, in the comic books, Ian Nottingham... Okay, so let's get to Kenneth and Yancey. Yancey, uh, uh, Sarah and uh, the two Sarahs and the two Kenneth Irons are kind of identical to what they look like in the comics. I mean, Yancey Butler is very attractive and in very good shape, as it's seen later on in this episode when she's doing all of her gymnastics. Uh, sorry, her gym exercises, but she's not the super-duper model, busty supermodel like she is in the comic book, and she doesn't need to be. Uh, um, I mean, they no, really no, portray her as this. I, I think in the television show, it's played more uh, tough girl versus the comic book for what I've read so far, where in the comic book, there's a little bit more of a sexier edge to it, and that could be just because it's comics. Right. Um, Kenneth Irons kind of basically looks like the way Kenneth Irons does in the book. Um, I mean, he in the comic book, he's always been basically right from the beginning seen as the bad guy. It's in the uh, it's in the uh, TV series that we get like a different feel from him. You know, he he's trying to be he's trying to be Sarah's friend. Mm. From the first made-for-TV show, I was not quite sure whether that character was going to be a good guy or a bad guy. They were they're really treading the line with what 
you need to think as an audience member. And and that was going to be explored, of course, in season one. And his personal bodyguard slash hitman slash adopted son, uh, Ian Nottingham, is portrayed incredibly different than the way he is in the comic book. In the comic book, yes, he is very loyal to uh, Kenneth Irons, but he also has his own agenda, and he is in absolutely love with Sarah. And they actually have a relationship for a little while. And uh, then he kind of disappears, and then he comes back, and Sarah has to arrest him. That actually happens in Ron's run of the book. Um, Nottingham in the comic book has, like, long hair, kind of Asian features, and is this, like, jacked-up bodybuilder swordsman. In the TV series, he's running around like a homeless person with a beanie cap on. It's kind of ridiculous. Well, I mean, it does. He does have the beanie cap and the long coat, but I wouldn't say homeless. Like he wears this. He looks like a homeless person necklace. most of the time. <laughs> oh, that that necklace that he wears is you can see it in almost every scene, and I think it's purposeful them showing it to determine that he is not just Joe Blow, uh, hitman guy. He is someone special that you watch out for. Uh. Then we also have we have David Chokachi, who's best known as from Baywatch, and in fact that's kind of the joke of his character is that Jake McCarthy is this former surfing champion, hence why he's got this really nice apartment. Sarah points out, but yeah, David was a big star on Baywatch, and he's got the he's got a Baywatch body. I mean, clearly evident when he's steaming his shirt off watching Thundercats. Or. Or what else was he doing watching Thundercast? <laughs> I don't want to know. Then we got Danny Wu, played by Will Young Lee. Also perfect casting, as Danny is this the, the Asian detective that Sarah's partner, and unfortunately does die in the comic books. Um, he uh, is unfortunately killed while investigating a... Um, they're at the theater, and Kenneth Irons is trying to get people to put on the Witchblade, and that's when Danny unfortunately gets killed. Yeah. It's like this tournament that's set up, and uh, person after person are trying to uh, get the Witchblade on them, and they're not deemed worthy or something, and burns them up. Right. Um, there's also a uh, subplot of a serial killer going around in the comics that they don't, I don't think they touch upon in the show called the Microwave Murderer, where women are being like completely fried out of their skulls, like kind of like the angels do on Supernatural. And it's actually Kenneth Irons' mm-hmm. ex-wife. Oh. Yeah, and you see all these, like, incredibly busty-looking girls or whatever just with their entire, you know, their their heads completely burned out of their skulls. Mm, yeah. Um, and then we have, uh, we also have Joe, who's a recurring, recurring character. She is Sarah. She's everybody's boss. Um, okay, so Ron is ready. I'm just going to find him real quick. Uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah's boss, Joe, who used to work with his father, is a recurring character in the comic books as well, and he's a recurring character on the show. Ron Myers. And in the in the made-for-TV movie, he is the one to reveal that she is actually adopted and not uh, the father who she thought was her father. Correct. So it leaves it open for this whole bloodline thing to, to be factual. I also want to point out that in the comic books, when Sarah goes on her big mission or whatever, she dresses like a hooker. <laughs> Yeah, bright red dress, yeah. Bright lead pleather or red dress, absolutely. Doing stunts and jumps that I just don't think you could actually pull off in that outfit. But it's funny that the the show gives us an opening sequence of Sarah, you know, getting dressed, and then they switch right into the U2 song, um, Mysterious Ways. Yeah. Which I'm curious about how much they paid for that song. 
Mysterious Ways came out in 1991 and was on YouTube's album At Chung Baby. And it was quite popular at the time. Oh, yeah. That song, is, that song is incredibly popular. I'm curious about how many times it's appeared in movies. And just as Mysterious Ways is playing, we have our guest now on the show with us, former Witchblade writer Ron Mars. Thank you for coming on the podcast with us, Ron. Oh, sure, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And Ron also had a chance to watch the pilot episode, so he'll actually be on for the whole podcast. Ron, your uh, big contribution to the Witchblade, besides it going, your your run went from issues 80 to 150 and then coming back after uh, the Tim Seeley run, is you gave the Witchblade an origin story. Um, yeah, the Witchblade itself, not, you know, not necessarily Sarah who had the Witchblade, but the Witchblade itself. And, and, you know, really, I just kind of, I kind of pulled together all the pieces that had been spread out there during, you know, during the book's existence and just tried to, just tried to puzzle them together into something that would make sense. And, and we wound up with, you know, ultimately the origin of the Witchblade. So what is the origin of the Witchblade? Uh, the Witchblade is essentially the child of the darkness and the Angelus, which is the embodiment of light in the universe. So, um, so it's it's uh, we we essentially ended up calling the Witchblade the balance, which is the you know the balance between the dark and the light, and this this child of essentially um, a, a darkness demon and an angel of light um, was supposed to bring balance to the universe. Uh, Obviously, sometimes that works out better than others. <laughs> now, uh, how many people, in your estimation, have had the Witchblade? Lots. <laughs> to be really specific, lots. Uh, the, I mean, the way I treated it is that there was a different Witchblade wielder for every every generation or so. So maybe oh, you're wow. talking 20, 30, 40 years for each bearer or somewhat less if that bearer ended up on the wrong, you know, the wrong end of uh, some sort of sharp implement, mm-hmm. um, but the 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 conceit that we approached it with was that the witchblade would choose a different bearer, sort of in every era. So um, there was this long line of women who had possessed this thing all the way back to sort of prehistoric times. Oh wow! The uh, now, did did. Did you ever see the episode, uh, or did you ever watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? They did a big, like, origin of the Slayer, and it kind of was, I thought, very similar to the origin of the Witchblade. And the Witchblade and Buffy kind of came out around the same time. Um, I have to admit, I've never seen an episode of Buffy in my life. Um, and and I actually I've, I have written another book, a creator-owned book at Image called Shinku, which is a, you know a woman who is a vampire hunter and people have told me, Oh, that, you know, that's kind of like Buffy. And I'm like, okay, I believe you, but I've never seen Buffy in my life. I've never seen Buffy. I've never seen angel. So I don't have any, you know, I don't have any grasp of what exactly that is other than, you know, it, it's, um, it, obviously it's, it's a TV show that morphed into comics and has a huge fandom. Now with the Witchblade, um, did you have the the TV series started before your run on the comics, correct? Yeah, 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 quite, quite a bit before actually. When you watch, did you watch it when it first premiered? Um, I watched the premiere, and then um, I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it afterwards, just because I I frankly don't watch a lot of TV in the first place, or at least back then I didn't watch a whole lot of TV because that was pre 
you know, pre-DVR, pre-streaming, um, you sort of had to watch stuff and or maybe record it on the VCR if you wanted to see it. Um, now, obviously, we're a, you know, we're a binge society and you watch whatever you want, whenever you want. But that was certainly not the case when, when Witchblade initially appeared. Now, how did you get the gig to write Witchblade in the first place? Um, uh, the publisher, Top Cow, which is part of Image, essentially asked me. Um, I, I had done some issues of The Darkness for them uh, and um, as sort of a tryout to make sure we liked each other and uh, we got along just fine. And then they asked me what I wanted to do, like what my next project for them was going to be. And I said, you know, honestly, the, the thing that you guys publish that I like the best is the Magdalena, which is essentially the Catholic Church's monster hunter. Um, and it had all of this backstory and Catholic iconography and monsters. And I thought, man, that's just totally in my wheelhouse. And um, So the Magdalena the went after the, the pedophile priest then, right? Oh, I'm no. sorry? I said the Magdalena went after the pedophile priest of the Catholic Church then, right? Um, n not often enough, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so that was, you know, that was my, that was the thing that I was first drawn to for Top Cow. And they said, yeah, Magdalene is pretty cool, but tell you what, why don't you do Witchblade instead? <laughs> um, we want to, you know, we want to sort of revive Witchblade and, and, you know, uh, put it, you know, set it in a different direction. Um, so I said, well, okay, but honestly, I've never read an issue of Witchblade in my life. So you need to send me you need to send me everything <laughs> a couple of days later you know this huge box shows up at the house and the you know the FedEx driver sort of staggers up the staggers up the driveway with this huge box and i sat down and read you know 70 some issues of witchblade along with um uh, along with uh various and sundry specials and crossovers and all that kind of stuff so obviously i got a real you know i got a real sense of of what the character was, what the concept was, um, and a sense of what I wanted to, what I wanted to keep, and the the a sense of the stuff that I wanted to ignore taking over the book. How, um, so, what? Uh, I should just go ahead, Miss Seneca. Okay, hi. So from when, from as the character was when you got the property. What was your direction? Where did you want to take the character? Well, I, I liked I liked the character, you know, this sort of, you know, tough as nails New York City detective, um, you know, strong female protagonist, all that, and and I liked the concept. I liked the concept of this cyclical artifact that attached itself to different bearers and um, and allowed them to, you know, have this sort of supernatural weapon. Um, the the part that sort of you know wow it's such a wacky coincidence that the witchblade tears her clothes off every time she uses it um, was was not as as interesting to me um, mm -hmm. so I you know I said to Topcow at the time I said look this is a cool concept and character and I think I can you know I I think I can put some flesh on these bones no <laughs> one um, and but I said if you're looking for stories that are an excuse for her clothes to fall off, that's not what I do. And that's not what I'm interested in. So if that's what you want, that's totally cool. And I understand there's a market for that, but I'm not the, I'm not the person to be writing it. And, mm -hmm. um, and they said, look, you, you we're hiring you to do what you do. 
So you do the kind of stories that you want and, and, you know, we'll support you on it. And that was honestly the last time we ever talked about it. Um, so certainly there was, you know, there was a sexy aspect to the book and she was, you know, she's a beautiful woman who, you know, who, um, was not naive and didn't, you know, it wasn't like we were, you know, playing this, you know, completely chaste character. She had relationships in the book and, and once in a while there was some sexy stuff, but it was part of the story. It wasn't this, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't this sort of male gaze, period interest stuff. Um, so, um, we, you know, we had that discussion once and they said, do what you do. And for, you know, for the next seven, eight, ten years or however long I was on the book, totally, we never talked about it again. Wow. And when, um, I mean, you had a, you had a bunch of great writers, uh, sorry, you had a bunch of, you had, hmm. You had a bunch of great artists on the book, but the biggest one that really contributed so much to it is, uh, is Stepan Sedgwick, who's gone on to big acclaim with uh, his Sunstone lesbian romance story, as well as working now for DC Comics. And uh, he's been on the Radio Horror Show just as well as you have. But uh, did you ever have a chance to meet uh, the Witchblaze co-creator, Michael Turner, before he passed away? Um, yeah, I, I knew Mike. Mike and I were friends. Um, we didn't see each other a lot because I'm East Coast and he was West Coast. But um, he was definitely, you know, somebody that I knew and um, somebody I had a relationship with and obviously somebody that I was very sorry to see pass uh, a long, a long, long time before he should have. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, so, God, um, DC's still publishing his artwork. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, Mike left a... Mike left a fairly indelible mark on this business in a in a relatively short amount of time. Um, you know what's funny is that there's an ad in the first issue that you did, which was issue 80, uh, which has which was uh, I had left Witchblade a long time ago, and I didn't really jump back into it when the TV series came out. I was just happy that they were going by the original stories. But your issue number 80 was the jumping back on point for the book for me, and I think a lot of people, especially because of the fact it was a free copy. Um, yeah, they, yeah, I mean, they, they being top cow put a, um, put a big push on it. And really my intention with Witchblade and certain, really with every book that I take over is when I come onto a book, the first issue should be a ground floor read. Um, you, you don't need to have read any other issues beforehand. You don't need to have, you know, peruse the Wikipedia page for the concept or the character for, for, for my money, you should be able to, when I take over a book, and really not just me, when any creator takes over a book, you should be able to jump on that book and have a pretty good sense of what's going on just from being inside that story. Uh, so my first arc and certainly my first issue, we we tried to make sure that if you had never read an, itch, uh, a, an issue of Witchblade in your life, um, if you had no idea who this character was and what this supernatural artifact was that you got all of that information within the story and you could just pick up you could buy that issue pick up and just go from there it didn't require any extra homework on your part and michael cho's artwork is fantastic and i love the fact that you introduced the character of uh, patrick gleason who stayed through your entire run as well as the mysterious curator who man was that mystery long with him considering he didn't really have a big 
uh, reveal until the artifact storyline, where you reveal the the different you know pieces of the artifacts: the darkness, the witchblade, the angelus, the, the this that thing, the whatever, the MacGuffin, yada yada yada. You know all the different pieces of like uh, you kind of do an early like uh, time stone thing with the you know the, the time stone with the what were the what was the what the uh, the infinity gems. You know, and there's it, all these different was, gems. And, of course, that's also a was, funny book that you worked on, Silver Surfer. <laughs> it was um, it was a, it was this question of sort of taking all of the things that Top Cow had done, you know, like Darkness and Angelus and Witchblade and, and trying to, you know, and, and amongst the other sort of supernatural artifacts that have been shown and putting all of them down on a piece of paper and going, okay, how do these... How do these connect? How do these relate to each other if they do at all? And, um, you know, I could sit here and tell you that that was the, that was the, the big plan that we had right from the get-go, but that would be a lie. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, so part of what you do when you come into a, a property that's part of a shared universe and that, that other people have had their hands on before you is – you figure out the stuff that works for you and you try to find the connections between those things. Um, and that's very much what happened with, with the artifact series and that, you know, we took Witchblade and darkness and Angelus as sort of this triumvirate of, of artifacts of powers. And then, and then utilized a bunch of other things that had appeared somewhere in the top cow universe some somewhere as somewhere part of that lore and then tried to figure out all right what is this whole tapestry how do these things all all link up and that's really where the artifact series came from and probably to a certain extent because i've worked a bunch for marvel and dc and and learned the lessons of working in those shared universes and and really some of my first work experience was writing Infinity Gauntlet tie-ins um, on my the first run I ever did as a regular run as a writer was Silver Surfer for Marvel and I had to learn how to tell stories in and around other stories as part of the Infinity Gauntlet saga um, you know that so that's a skill I learned almost from day one on the job now, as I uh, said before, we uh, had Braun join us on the call. Uh, we opened with the uh, U2 song, Mysterious Ways, and we jump right to a crime in progress, and we meet Danny, uh, who's got a coffee for her from Krispy Kreme, it looks like. I didn't know there was a Krispy Kreme in New York City. I thought that was a New England thing, but I guess I'm wrong. Oh, there, actually, there's, yeah, Krispy Kreme had, had, started to, um, had started to leak into New York at that point, and... Um, and I think actually, like at, at the time I took over Witchblade, I was living in Florida, so Krispy Kreme was a thing there. Um, I remember the the Krispy Kreme place we used to go to on Sunday mornings to, you know, to watch them make the donuts, to, you know, to watch them, you know, pour out of the uh, pour the batter, and and then they would roll off the assembly line. Um, and then, you know, we moved back to New York, and I ended up, uh, I ended up seeing Krispy Kremes in New York, but they ultimately didn't last. We ended up with Dunkin' Donuts, you know, dominating <laughs> the landscape. And now they're just called Dunkin's. We've dropped donuts from the title. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you can go get all sorts of unhealthy stuff there now. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, Mr. Zeneca and Ron Mars, how many cuts do you think this chase is? Oh, my God. It has so many cuts, I'm starting to get dizzy. 
40, I counted, I'm probably not uh, an exact, but approximately I counted 40 cuts when Sarah chases after this, after this uh, uh, mobster. Oh, yeah. Leading it, to it, her acquiring the Witchblade. <laughs> so many quick cuts, and and that chase that goes through the museum, um, I, I didn't quite know what was going on because it, the it was cut so fast, and with the locations, I didn't quite know where they were until she's looking at the Witchblade itself. I'm like, oh, they, she must be in, in a museum, not just a... a official, you know, foundation building or something like that. Now, in the comic book, she doesn't acquire the Witchblade until Danny is uh, shot and killed, and the Witchblade protects her from getting killed, too. After... Yeah, because she jumps in the way of the bullets, right. and it kind of comes to her rescue. Right, and Ian Nottingham and uh, uh, his boss, Kenneth Irons, and uh, some mob guys are there trying on the Witchblade to see who could wear it, cutting its hands off left and right. Um, and they really went into a completely different direction with this. As she just like gets the witchblade, big explosion, wakes up in bed, and she's like, "Oh hey, did I steal that from the museum? I don't remember anything." Big explosion, destroyed my memory. But then we go into a theater later on where Danny is killed. Yes. Yeah, and Jake is and, there. And somehow and... the date is 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 important here, November eleventh, two thousand. Yeah, um, this show I don't think is ever affected by 9-11. I don't think they even make mention of 9-11 uh, because season one was already filmed prior to 9-11 and then season two after 9-11, but I don't believe they have an episode, any mention of 9-11. If they do, it's just a in remembrance of the cops and you know, firefighters we lost, the, the first responders well, we'll be we on lost. Be on the lookout for it. Yeah, but the first shot of the show is the skyline of New York City with the World Trade Center. Yeah. It's always kind of interesting to see that after it being kind of gone for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember when the show came out, the press statement talking about when she gauntlets up with the Witchblade, it's not going to be like in the comic book. It's not going to tear her clothes apart. And I don't even think the show, through the entire two seasons that it ran, ever addresses... Whose dog is that? Oh, that is... That's definitely one of mine. Okay, um, I don't think this. I don't think this references something that which I don't think was even. I don't know if this was in the Bible before you took over, Ron, or if this was something that you created with the other creative team on the Witchblade about the Witchblade being a male sentient object. And of course, Sarah stares down in her chest when she's like, "Well, that makes a lot of sense." I I think I think I'm the one that said the Witchblade was male, um, because other otherwise all of you know. All of the, you know, reduction of clothes to like a metal bikini didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Right, um, and I think so. It... So, the, so in in my lore and what we did in the comic, um, the Witchblade was the offspring of the Angelus and the Darkness. Right, uh, and further, it was the male offspring of the Angelus and the Darkness. Right. Um, I think in another book, and I might be mistaken. I swear, I remember reading about like the armor that cups her chest which it, i mean it wouldn't be like a flat piece of armor it would have to cup her chest if her yeah, breasts are very large um are like hands which is like kind of a joke because it's a male sentient thing the armor looks like claws cupping her breasts like a man would um i i'm not going to take credit for that one okay i think that's where <laughs> i got to draw the line um so after she, acquire, she acquires the Witchblade and she's like, oh, how did I steal that? 
Um, you know, we meet Ian Nottingham, we meet Joe the Chief, we meet Jake McCarthy, the surfer boy. This is where I'm glad Rod Mars is on the show, because I love the character Jake McCarthy. What did you do, Rod Mars? <laughs> I threw him off the top of the Empire State Building. What? Why did you kill off Jake McCarthy? Because he needed it. Did you want to make way for Patrick Gleason? Um, no, I just felt like, um, you know, honestly, the... What did he do to deserve such a fate? Well, he um, kind of... Didn't he do something to Sarah's sister? Um, I, he uh, he got possessed by a demon, or I, you know, honestly, I don't even remember at this point. Um, <laughs> the, you know, but uh, I, I, I'm sure whatever he did, he deserved it. Uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, ultimately, I, I feel like when you when you do a book like this, or even when you do any sort of serialized fiction. To to communicate, you know that your your main character is not going to die. You know, Batman's not going to Batman might get his back broken once in a while, but he's not going <laughs> to die for good and never have any more Batman stories. So you know that you know that the audience nudge nudge wink wink realizes that your main character is not going anywhere. Right. Um, so everybody around your main character sort of becomes well. If somebody's got to go, it's going to be one of these characters. And if you're, and if you have, um, if you have a supporting character uh, that that you can put in harm's way, that's going to mean something for the readership. Hopefully, if you've developed your supporting characters well enough, um, that character's safety uh, means something. So, uh, certainly for uh, for a big anniversary issue, we weren't going to kill off Sarah Pizzini. But her longtime partner was was the guy who was going to suffer for it. I do like the fact that the end, at the back of issue number eighty, I have the first uh, six issues in front of me right now. The witch hunt storyline, which I absolutely love, and Michael's artwork uh, is just a beautiful for the uh, for your opening arc of the Witchblade. They have a uh, staff profile for you, which is pretty funny. Um, you like chocolate chip cookie dough. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is your favorite movie, and Rescue Me is your favorite TV series. Um, yeah, I guess I guess Rescue Me isn't my favorite TV series anymore because it's not on anymore. But everything else stands true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, in this storyline, Witch Hunt, Jake gets injured, and then he comes back later on. He's possessed, and then he dies. Um, and it's kind of sad. <laughs> well, you know what? It's supposed to be. Um, if if I, as the writer, kill off a character in a book and you don't care, I haven't done my job properly. Right. Uh, you should be sad. You should be upset. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes in fiction we have to reserve the right to tell an unhappy story. Uh, uh, there, there have to, there have to be consequences. Were to, you the to the drama? Were uh, you also the writer present. who killed off Shia Bell, uh, Silver Surfer's longtime squeeze? Um, I don't think I, I – if I killed her off, I didn't keep her dead. Okay. Uh, I, I certainly killed off Green Lantern's girlfriend. That oh, was, yeah. That, that one will follow me around for a while. <laughs> uh, although, although, interestingly, like, you know, Green Lantern's girlfriend, who wound up dead in a refrigerator thanks to the villain doing her in, um, you know, had appeared in, like, five issues ever. Yeah. And, and Jake McCarthy had appeared in dozens of issues of Witchblade. Um and in the in the scheme of things, there was a lot bigger outcry about Green Lantern's girlfriend, who had you know been on stage for about twenty minutes, as opposed to Jake, who had been in the book for years. 
you know, we didn't get a whole lot of reaction for, for Jay. I mean, I've talked to people who were like, oh, man, that was pretty rough. But, you know, certainly not the terms of, in terms of the, the letter writing and the hue and outcry of the whole thing. So, um, you know, sometimes characters connect with the audience far more than you think they are. Ian Nottingham on the show, as we were talking about before you came on, is really different than his comic book counterpart, where he kind of looks a lot like, and in fact, his job title is very similar to Jackie Estacado, a.k.a. the the Darkness Bear. Um, what did you think of the way Ian was in this show compared to, like, you know, the brief time that he was in the comic books um, that you wrote? Well, I, I mean, we ended up bringing Ian back in the comics, and fleshed him out a bit more. I think he became a little bit more of a, you know, well-rounded three-dimensional character who was maybe not a, not a bad guy, but not a good guy. He was the, you know, he was, he was the rogue you cared about, but didn't trust. Right. Um, and I Sarah, think, her and know, Sarah have a relationship, have had an intimate relationship. Yeah. I mean, he, he was sort of the, the bad boy that you shouldn't be with, but sometimes you are. Um, <laughs> So uh, I think in the in the show he was a little bit more he he ended up in a in more of a villain role than we ever put him in in the comics. Um, the TV in the show, yeah, go in, ahead. In the show, it draws correlations between Joan of Arc and the Witchblade. Was that ever fleshed out in the comics? Oh yeah, I mean, it was hinted that Joan of Arc was one of the Witchblade bearers, and we did. We did a number of stories, you know, like I wrote a number of stories about previous Witchblade bearers, and there were other stories by other creative teams before I even took over the book. And, you know, it it would would suggest that, you know, Joan of Arc was a Witchblade bearer, you mm-hmm. know, the pirate Anne Bonny was a Witchblade bearer. Um, so uh, one of the things that really attracted me to the concept overall was the fact that it was this it was this cyclical thing and different people through history could have, uh, could have possessed it. And, um, one of our big anniversary issues sort of started with, with Sarah Pizzini possessing the Witchblade, And then we went back through time to pick out different bearers, uh, all the way back to the first one to kind of, uh, lead you to where the, the origin of the Witchblade actually occurred. Oh, one question though: Is the Witchblade too overpowered for its universe? Um, I don't think so. I never, I never played it as too overpowered. Um, feeling like you know, the Darkness and the Angelus are these personified, uh, powerful concepts. And uh, you know, when I wrote the Darkness, I actually found that one of the difficulties in doing that series was that the darkness could do damn near anything. So you really you really had to work to put an adversary against the darkness who was a even worse than the darkness because the darkness is is you know is a bad guy essentially. So you your your antagonists ended up having to be even worse bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and the darkness could do virtually anything. When you can summon all these little demons to do whatever you want them to do. Um as long as you were, you know, like not standing out in the sunlight, you were pretty much invincible. So, it, you know, the, writing the darkness became an exercise in figuring out how to how to play that concept uh, and 
and make it a you know make it a an actual contest for uh, whoever was the darkness embodiment of the time to come up against his opponents. Um, I felt like the Witchblade because it was one generation removed from quote unquote its parents. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was less all powerful. It was less omnipotent. Yeah, because it seems that it can do anything within the context of the comics. Like it's got full body armor. It has swords and hooks and energy blasters and whip grapples and flight. You know, it could form wings if it wanted to and raise the dead. It, it, it just seemed like it was this all powerful tool. Let's talk about raising the dead because in the in the in the show when Danny dies, they go right to the funeral. That's it. Funeral, uh, bodies in the ground, flowers are laid, it's snowing, everyone's mourning, everyone's sad, very cop funeral. In the comic book, Sarah tries to use the Witchblade like a genie and raise Danny from the dead, and it kind of becomes like a monkey's paw scenario. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a lot of this stuff, comics and, you know, film or TV are are cousins but they're kind of bastard cousins and something that works in the comic might not necessarily work on film um and i think that's one of the that's because the comics are there you know in most cases for years and years and years your your storytelling parameters are a little different than coming in and doing a season of a tv show yeah yeah the medium is just a completely different some things you know, just like with The Walking Dead, some things will not translate when it goes up on the screen. Yeah, I, you know, I'm never somebody who, like, looks at a TV show or a film and says, oh, well, that's, you know, that's different from the comic, so it's no good. Um, things should be different for the comic because they're, they're different forms of media. Um, stuff, that, stuff that works in comics maybe doesn't work uh, on film and vice versa. Um, so, I, you know, I'm never one who's concerned about how faithful something is. My concern is how well does this work as its own thing, as, as what it is. I think that's one of the real strengths of the Marvel movies, for instance, is they, they really capture the essence of what makes the Marvel universe and the Marvel characters work. And then they work within a cinematic context. They don't, you know, they don't slavishly follow what's in the comics in terms of every detail, but they get they get all the important stuff right. They get the spirit of everything right, and I think that's one of the reasons that the audience really responds to it. Yeah, I mean, Did, especially in that Infinity War Endgame movie. I mean, two big characters that were in like your yours, Ron Lim, and um, what is Thanos's creator's name? Uh, Starlin. Starlin. That were missing was the Silver Surfer and. Adam Warlock, but that's a whole other podcast about the Marvel Universe that I'm sure that you have probably talked about before. Um, back into the Witchblade, um, Danny's like a force ghost through this show. Yeah, essentially. Um, it's, um, look, I, you know, it, one of the things when, you know, when I was thinking about doing this show is that this was the Witchblade show was pre, you know, pre Hollywood discovering comics in a lot of ways. Right, X Men uh, was the only thing that was out at least two months prior to this in July, or yeah, at least a month. Sorry, uh, X Men came out in July. Witchblade debuted on TV in August. So you know, pr- pretty much filming at the same time, and 
and this was this was a long time this was long before um the entertainment industry discovered that you know comics were maybe the best material to exploit ever because huh. now you know because now it's everywhere film tv streaming everything right um, god look at netflix they've got lock, they've got lock and key and the october faction happening in the exact same month on netflix both comic books written by joe hill and steve niles yeah i mean it's it's um look i i'm i grew up in an era when the the best you could hope for in terms of superheroes beyond Christopher Reeve as Superman in a big-budget, successful movie was was Lou Ferrigno painted green on your TV every every Saturday night. Um, <laughs> like, and we were damn glad to have it. You know, there, there weren't any other options. Um, so, uh, you know, if you had told me as a kid that we would, you know, we'd be here, that we'd be, that we'd have, you know, stuff that in terms of the overall audience, is is pretty esoteric, um, lock and key and October faction and even Witchblade uh, had been in you know in front of of a worldwide audience as a as a TV series, you know I couldn't have possibly even considered that as a kid. With um... do you feel that this show captures the essence of Witchblade well? Or well enough for you to recommend it to your friends? <laughs> oh yeah, well enough certainly. Um, uh, and obviously there are limitations in terms of, of budget and in terms of special effects that that are apparent if you've you know if you've read the comic, you know that it's not an exact translation. But it's I think it's pretty solid for what it for what it aspires to be. Um, Supernatural cop drama. Yeah, and it's and honestly, it's it's pretty perfect in terms of of a of a vehicle to go on TV. Yeah, um, I mean TNT had a budget. This was on cable. This wasn't syndication. This wasn't on the regular channels like ABC, CBS, NBC, where they can't do special effects very well. Even on the CW today, the Flash, Supergirl, Green Arrow, all that stuff, it looks great sometimes, and sometimes it does not look great. And I mean, I'll give them better for the doubt because they have a TV budget, and I know Warner Brothers has all the money in the world like Disney does, but. They don't regulate it to the CW that much, especially if you look at 15 years of Supernatural never being able to do a goddamn werewolf correctly. But uh, TNT had a budget. I mean, they were they put money into this thing, especially the cinematography, the shots and everything. You know, the music, the way the camera was, everything looked really good. The special effects are whatever, but it, it, they really made, went out of their way to make this show look really great and it's very evident by the TV pilot and they kept everything from the pi- uh, the TV movie they kept everything in the movie into the TV series which we'll get to in a couple weeks yeah it's i think it's a you know it's a really solid attempt especially for the era in which it was produced um to you know to to take what what the, to take the overall concept from the comic and take the spirit of the comic and bring it to uh Weekly TV series. What did you think of uh-huh. Living Dead Girl for the uh, for the club scene song? How many times have we seen Living Dead Girl play during a club scene? <laughs> well, hey, I, that's one of my favorite club songs. So. Yeah, but yeah, how many? Man. Okay, but it's probably synonymous <laughs> with uh, Poison's um, "Pour Some Sugar on Me" for the number oh. one song to strip to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> 
Um, again, going back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, there is an episode where Faith and Buffy, I think at least a year or two before this movie aired, are at a club after they just got done slaying some vampires, and they're rocking out and grinding against each other as uh, Living Dead Girl is playing, or it's a Dragula, but it's a Rob Zombie song of some kind. Uh, but also Bride of Chucky, you know, the opening song of Bride of Chucky when uh, Tiffany kills the cop and steals the Chucky doll. Uh, yep. the, the rights must have been cheap at the time. It must have been very cheap because we have three big songs in the pilot for this. Uh, we have Mysterious Ways, which we went over just before you came on. We have Rob Zombie's Living Dead Girl, and we have Lenny Kravitz's uh, um, – is that American Woman? Oh, I didn't. I didn't catch that one. The the final the credits is played during American Woman. I think so. Okay. Um, it's just funny that they had the budget for those songs. I mean, they're not cheap, especially you two. Oh yeah, I'm sure at the time that was a you know that was that was a a real decision that had a lot of people sitting around a conference room table to figuring out. All right. Is this worth it to us to spend this money? Mr. Zeneca and Ron Mars, what did you think of uh, series protagonist uh, Witchblade's own Lex Luthor, Kenneth Irons? I liked him. I, I, of course, wasn't sure whether he was going to be a good guy or a bad guy. And then, uh, you know, as I was reading more of the comics, I'm like, oh, all right, bad guy. <laughs> but I really liked him. I liked that line that he's treading on this TV movie. Yeah, he's an interesting... Um, and he's obviously a character that, that I wrote a few times, and I, I I can't say I ever liked him, but I can't say I ever disliked him either. So I guess that's the you know that's him fulfilling the proper role. Um, but he was definitely different on the show because in the comic book, right from the very first, uh, from the I, I have issue number one in my hand right now, the very first page, he's the bad guy. He's got the look of a bad guy. And yes, on the show, you can kind of get the sense that he's a bad guy. But he really wants to be Sarah's friend, obviously only to get to the Witchblade. It's kind of like on the Flash TV series, the the current one. Um, Eobard Thawne, who's posing as Harrison Wells, is really wants to be Barry's friend. But that's only because he wants access to the Speed Force and Barry's speed, because without Barry, he doesn't become Reverse Flash in the future to go back in time and kill Barry's mom and that whole Terminator time paradox thing. Well, it's, I mean, that's a character that's totally hard for me to see as anybody except Ed from the TV series Ed, because <laughs> I love that show and love that dude, so I, I just can't see him as a supervillain. Did you catch what movie was playing on the TV, Mrs. Zeneca, during the club scene? I didn't write it down. I noticed it, I noticed it but I didn't write it down. I believe that's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah, sounds right. Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah tracks down the info at the club and meets Nottingham again after meeting uh, after meeting Kenneth Irons. Uh, the shots are really great, uh, and uh, we get to uh, then we then we get to the big showdown with uh, the mob boss Gallo, who not only killed Sarah's friend Maria, who was I guess she was a hooker intentionally well, or just, unintentionally. She was a party girl. She was a party girl. Uh, but she also he also of course killed Danny and it revealed that she killed he um, blah Gallo killed Sarah's father. Yes, and that's a big point because he's just admitting that he's a cold blooded killer and that he has no emotion towards this. It was just business, and they get into, the, into this huge tussle. And I I found a continuity error. Continuity error. Continu- continuity. I have difficulty with that word. <laughs> <laughs> so 
uh, Words right are hard. It's okay. Uh, right when they're tumbling down. Hold on. Oh, you got motorcycles. Right when they're tumbling down the stairs, the the. Right when they're tumbling down the stairs, the quick cuts of the uh, of the tumbling fashion, in one of those cuts, which is only a fraction of a second, you can see her actually wearing the witchblade when in the next cut scene, she does not have it. Mm, Error. Interesting. Yeah. Now, did uh, this... Did you did you guys at Top Cow Studios ever get to see the Witchblade from the TV series? Like, I mean the I mean the Witchblade. Oh, you know what? I'm sure I'm sure those guys did because Top Cow's in LA, and obviously it's an LA it's an LA uh, production production. Um, but uh, since this was before I actually took over the book, and and uh, I've I've never seen any of the props from the show uh, at all. Now, was the anime show going on at the time that you were writing the book? Um, I think the anime had been, maybe it was in production when I took over the book, or, or you know, shortly thereafter it, it came out. Um, it, uh, you know, obviously the anime is a, is a completely different thing than than what we were doing in the comic or, or what this show was. Right. The anime um, is not even Sarah. It's a woman in uh, Japan post-World War III or something like that. It's a, it's a post-apocalyptic Japan. Yeah, it's it's a, you know, it's it's a take on the concept. And I know from, you know, speaking with, you know, Matt Hawkins at Top Cow and Mark Silvestri, that when when the opportunity came up to have, a, uh, have an anime based on the concept, they just sort of said to the anime studio, look, um, you know, you guys know how to make anime do what you do, and we're going to generally leave you alone. Um, I, I know that, like, the the only real stricture that was was given to them was, hey, let's, you know, let's let's knock it off with a tentacle porn. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, it, they gave them a pretty, a, a pretty wide range of, of, uh, of stuff that they could do with the series, and it was a you know, it's certainly a, a very different take, but it it sort of exists side by side, which I always thought was kind of cool. If if um, if I had stayed stayed on the book a bit longer, one of the stories we wanted to tell was to somehow bring the the Witchblade anime into the continuity of the comic. Wow, Ooh. that would have been awesome. The Witchblade anime is actually something that Mrs. Zeneca and I are going to cover. In a single episode, as a special edition, at the end of this show's run, I we will watch a couple episodes and just kind of have our overall feel of the anime show. There's 24 episodes of the anime, so I've seen them all, but I don't expect Mr. Zeneca to watch all 24 episodes. But we'll watch a couple episodes and then just kind of go over the anime cartoon in one big gulp and possibly have Matt Hawkins on the show as he was an executive producer of the anime and helped contribute to story elements. Um, but, they, yeah. but they did not do tentacle porn on the anime. They did point out that the woman who becomes the Witchblade Bearer has like a triple D chest because that was a joke popped up every once in a while, especially with her daughter. Um, and the they really, since they didn't, they wanted to make the anime appealing to people. They definitely wanted to emphasize the sexuality of the Witchblade because every time she wore it, she sounded like she was having an orgasm. 
Yeah, I, I've seen the pictures of the anime Witchblade, and I have to say, like, you know, if you thought the comic books were unrealistic human proportions, the anime is just wild. But it's funny, though, because it's cartoons. In the comic book, when Sarah gets her clothes ripped up by the Witchblade, they stay shredded, or she stays naked if she's naked to begin with. Or, again, they tear enough that when her the gauntlet goes back into its normal form, kind of like the way, let's say, Bruce Banner goes back to being, you know, from Hulk to Banner or She-Hulk to Jennifer Walters. The shredded outfit. The shredded outfit covers up the bits that need to be covered up because it's a PG-13 kind of story. In the anime, when she gauntlets up into the Witchblade, she's got a tongue piercing, she's partially naked, but when she goes back to being whoever she is, she's got her clothes (laughs) completely intact. It's the the magic of animation. It's the magic of animation. It's the magic of whatever the F you want magic to do, magic will do it. That's why people have a hard time trying to explain magic in books like Thor, Doctor Strange, Harry Potter, things like that. But I digress. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, speaking of armor, she goes full body armor from head to toe. Now, I don't know. I've been looking up on the IMDb credits. Who is in the body armor of the Witchblade when she is full on armored? Is that Yancey Butler? Is it her stunt double? I'm looking it up right now. But, uh, again, example, when when the comic book Witchblade armors up, it, it either tears her clothes off, covers her up enough for whatever that it doesn't tear her clothes apart, but still cups her and touch, you know, grabs all of her body parts or whatever, but not the parts that would be like, oh, look, the kidneys are still exposed, the liver is exposed, her, you know, between her chest, her, you know, her breasts are exposed, you know, parts of her that you think would someone easy take a bullet at, but the Witchblade acts a lot like the Venom symbiote or any of the symbiotes in the Marvel yeah, Universe. Yeah, definitely symbiotic. It sometimes talks to her. Right. It covers up where it needs to cover up to take a bullet, let's just say, or a sword. Um, but she goes full head-to-toe body armor in this, which is interesting because in your run of the book, Ron, Stepan Sedgwick put the Witchblade in neck-to-toe body armor. Very sexy body armor, but still, it wasn't this, you know, overly ogling TNA kind of uh, image, which is funny considering the, the, the type of art that Sedgwick would go on to draw later on. Well, it was... You know, we did what we felt was story appropriate to the story. Um, when when I took over the book and Mike Choi was the first artist in, um, the the notion was, well, you know, if you had this thing that could make, you know, make head to toe body armor to protect you when you're fighting, you know, demons and monsters and you know things that go bump in the night, why would you end up in a metal bikini? Like, you know. So, so the the notion was, you know, let's make this practical. It could still be, you know, it could still be sexy, but there should be some practical concerns about if if this thing can do whatever I want it to, why wouldn't I have it protected? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent correct. Um, we end the show with Nottingham um, staring at a picture of Pizzini, but I couldn't tell who the artist was in that image. Ron, do you know who it was? Um, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. Actually, I thought it was Michael Turner, but it's it, it has a Turner esque feel to it until you see the face, and it's not definitely not Turner. Um, but it's um, still I'll a good to, image. I'll, I have to go back and inspect that again. Yeah, um, we definitely get all sorts of flashbacks to the Witchblade. We get Joan of Arc. We get Cleopatra. 
Um, you know, in the in the in, the, in issue ninety two, you go into a lot of the different Witchblade bearers. I think the last person to wear the Witchblade before Sarah acquires it was a Russian soldier woman in the nineteen fifties during World War Two or nineteen forties during World War Two. Because um, between forty two and nineteen ninety five, I don't think anybody wore the Witchblade after the Russian soldier. We, I don't think we showed anybody with it. Um, I did have a I did have a story that I wanted to tell that was I mean it, it's it's probably fairly likely that somebody had it and maybe we just haven't told those stories yet. Um, one of the things that we never got around to I wanted to do a a Witchblade annual um, and tell a 1960s story and do a Witchblade that basically would have been like a a, a take on what if Jack Kirby had drawn the Witchblade? Oh, um, that would have been interesting. So, so it would have been a you know a very sort of Marvel Silver Age Jack Kirby kind of inspired story. Right, and then we end with uh, Jake and Sarah as partners. Danny is a ghost. He'll be a ghost. How long he'll be a ghost? We're not gonna say. Where's some stuff comes up? I don't want to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen the show, including Mr. Zeneca. We're not going to talk about what's going to happen in the future of this amazing TV series. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. And then we end with the uh, the song during the credits. And Witchblade took a year off before it came back as a TV series in the summer of 2001, which I was so happy about. I had just gotten out of basic training, so I had a chance to watch it, and I was I was I was ecstatic that this was this was coming back. I actually have in my Room right now, hanging up on the wall, right next to a poster of Christopher Reeve's Superman flying into the Phantom Zone criminals. Uh, I have the comic book store, my local comic book store, That's Entertainment, gave me the movie poster that came out for the Witchblade. It's the red poster with Yancey Butler holding the Witchblade, um, and it's got the TNT logo and everything. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's a thing that I don't even have, so <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. Um. Ron, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to talk about your time on The Witchblade as well as covering this episode with us. Oh, thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, no problem, guys. Thanks a bunch. I I, um, I really enjoyed it, and um, I enjoyed my time on Witchblade a bunch. It was it was never a book that I, you know, you, when you get into this business, you feel like, oh, you know, here's my bucket list of things I wanted to do, and The Witchblade was not on my bucket list. It wasn't anything I even considered, but... Uh, I think, all told, it's I've probably written more Witchblade stories and stayed on that book longer than anything else in my career. Um, so the, it's you know it, it often turns out that the things you don't expect end up being the best fit. I didn't read it yet, and I I still got to find it. Um, where did you leave Sarah? Because when we come back to the Witchblade last year with that book that Top Cow did, which I I started reading. And I li- I got into it because I liked that writer. She was on a book called Coffin Hill for Vertigo for a little while, for like 23 mm-hmm. issues. And I was so excited. But then I read it, and I was like, this is like the Witchblade, but it's not. I don't know what they're doing. And, I mean, I know nobody at my local comic book store unfortunately read it, which is a shame. But what happened to Sarah at the end of your r- return run? Um, it's left pretty open. It's not like we, it's not like we ended Sarah's story. Um, we ended Sarah's story with the Witchblade, or at least for now. Um, but you know, the rest of her life was, was stretched out in front of her. So, um, I certainly, uh, 
would more than happily go back and tell more stories about Sarah, whether she's got the Witchblade or not. It was a character that I um, that I really grew fond of over the years, and and you know, it's it's a you know, it's a character that I had a relationship with for you know more than ten years, uh, almost on a daily basis. So you do get attached after a while. Um, so Sarah's Sarah's still out there. There's still more stories to tell about her, and hopefully at some point we get around to them. And we got the darkness coming back, but I haven't heard anything about the Witchblade from Top Cow, so maybe the Witchblade is coming as well. Again, this is the, uh, for anyone listening, and anyone who's a fan of the Witchblade, this is the 25th anniversary of the Witchblade. She was created in 1995. Um, it's, uh, it's a, the darkness and the Witchblade are both concepts that I think have, have ultimately stood the test of time. They were, um, they were sort of the, the next step for Top Cow as a as a as a publisher, um, moving beyond the superhero stuff that initially they the initially was uh, was what they did. Um, this was this was a different kind of material, uh, especially in 1995 when uh, these things were being built. Uh, you know, everybody everybody was doing their you know everybody was doing their X Men imitation. So to do something like Witchblade and Darkness was was really pretty far afield uh, at that time in comics, and and certainly you know both in comics and in uh, other media they've they've kind of proven themselves. Mr. Zeneca, do you have any last questions for Ron before we go? Well, I was just going to ask if he has something that he wants to uh, pitch on our show, or you know what what are you working on right now? Um. A bunch of different things. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief at Ominous Press, and we continue to do our own material there. We just published a hardcover World War II graphic novel by me and Daryl Banks, uh, who was my artist on Green Lantern for seven years, called uh, Harkins Raiders. Um, So that just came out. Um, I've got a samurai miniseries from uh, IDW that I think is coming out. First issue comes out this week uh, called Rising Sun, based on the board game that was a huge Kickstarter success. Um, and there's other stuff coming out this year that I'm actually not supposed to talk about yet. No. So um, there's, you know, I, I, I never wonder what to do when I get up in the morning. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, there's always something hanging over my head, but I just can't tell you exactly what they are yet. But uh, <laughs> look out and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll get back to Top Cow and, and do some more there because that's, that's been one of the true pleasures of my career. And, um, I like everybody there. I like the characters. Um, it, it, it's really been a, a terrific home for me. You, you've, uh, you definitely are one of those writers who has lengthy runs on books. You're not just like a pitch hit. You're not here for six months and then jumping onto another one. Because Silver Surfer, Green Lantern, and Witchblade, you all you had pretty lengthy runs on. Well, it's certainly you know certainly the the standard you know when I broke into comics the standard was was lengthier runs in general. Right. Um, but I found that when I get on to a book that, that ends up being a good fit, like Surfer, like Green Lantern, like Witchblade, um, I like to stick around a while. Um, particularly on Witchblade, um, I found that the, uh, the concept was elastic enough that I could tell different kinds of stories um, all the time. We did, we did superhero stuff. We did police procedural we did supernatural we did you know sort of domestic relationship stuff we the the concept was elastic enough that 
if I got bored, it was my own damn fault. Um, mm-hmm. I could, you know, I could tell uh, a monster story in one issue and then do a straight crime story in the next issue. And because the concept fit all that stuff, it all, at least to my mind, worked pretty well. It, it was all, it was all um, fair game for, uh, for the title. And I, you know, I, I, I honestly still miss it in some ways because, um, because it was, it was such a, it's such a different concept. And because Top Cat really let me tell the kind of stories I wanted to tell, um, it was a pleasure from the first issue to the last. Well, again, Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Where can people find you on social media? I am at Ron Mars on Twitter. Uh, and that's generally where I am. There's a, uh, there's a Facebook fan page that I check on a regular basis. But generally, if you want to track me down, track me down on Twitter because I sit at my desk all day, and that's usually a window that's open. Where can people find you, Mrs. Zeneca? I am on Facebook and on Twitter at Elegantly Kinky or Mr. Seneca. And you can find us uh, normally on the Dead TV Podcast Facebook page. You'll see at the top post is a picture of me and Ron Mars from when he was at a convention in Connecticut in 2014. It was the first time I had a chance to meet Ron, and uh, I was uh, very grateful to have a chance to have him on the Radio of Horror show uh, several years ago and to have him come back now for Witchblade. Uh, you can also find me on at Twitter at Chris D S A V and the Radio Horror Instagram and anything else with Radio Horror in the title. But the Dead TV podcast is where you can find me and Mr. Zeneca. And we'll be back in two weeks with the first episode of The Witchblade, uh, which will be a much shorter episode. <laughs> and we'll be covering the first two episodes of the show as well. So stay tuned as we are on Witchblade for the next several months. And again, don't forget, this will be in two weeks. We are not doing weekly here on the Dead TV podcast. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, got to give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. (laughs) That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheers cast. A podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network.